Hello everyone, it's May 4th, 2021. So there's a Chinese rocket that is currently orbiting above us and will be falling back to Earth any day now. Also on Mars, there's a helicopter that with any luck will be lifting off for the fifth time any day now. Let's talk about them both. Let's do it right now and lift off. Through the tower. Welcome to episode 307 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Any uh, banter? Well, I mean, it, it's it's not good banter, but yeah, we need to talk about Michael Collins. Oh, yeah, that's true. I can't remember how I found out. You know how you find out about things and you don't remember? That's totally mm-hmm. me. But uh, I, hadn't, I haven't really had time to process it, to be honest with you. Um, I just found out what well, this was like a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, I, I, I think I did read an article. Uh, and he was described, and I think we had even talked about this as uh, the loneliest man in the world because of, uh, you know, his particular role in Apollo Eleven. Yeah, except mm-hmm. he he's been very clear that he didn't feel lonely. I think he had more of a transcendent slash tranquil experience. But yeah, we lost yeah. Michael Collins this week. And, you know, and there are fewer and fewer Apollo astronauts every day. Well, every day, fewer and fewer uh, Apollo astronauts every year. And uh, I, I hope he really enjoyed his, you know, his life after Apollo, because it, it's interesting because like, you know, we talk a lot about how Apollo astronauts were just very particular types of people, you know, like to, to be able to go and do that mission requires a very uh, a strong resolve and some amount of uh, danger tolerance and just a, a, an inherent excitement for exploration. And then we don't talk so much about what it takes to be an astronaut or a professional after that experience. Like, you know, just (laughs) you become somebody who uh, is idolized and being idolized is not, you know, to be known. Right. Like we Mm -hmm. when you idolize somebody, you don't actually know them. Um, And so they went from being um, very quiet people to being potential astronauts and you know everybody's buying them drinks to going to the moon and coming back and you know being heroes and then the rest of their lifetime while they're still heroes Mm -hmm. you know nobody knows uh, a lot of their names or you know few people know their names to this day like they you know they wouldn't just be able to recognize it and i don't think Mm -hmm. very many people at all would recognize their faces on the street and like that whole experience has got to be more shocking than going to the moon i would think even though it happens over a longer period so i i really hope that uh that collins had a had a a good enjoyable life afterwards well he lived to 90 years old so i I think he did well you know what i mean like you don't i feel like you don't get to be that old like unless you know how to live right you know what i mean (laughs) Um, that's just my own personal <laughs> philosophy, but <laughs> I was hearing some people apparently that knew him, you know, were tweeting about him, and it sounds like he had a great sense of humor, you know, mm-hmm. uh, even later in his life. And so, um, I'm looking up a quick little, you know, synopsis here, and I didn't know that he was born in Rome, Italy. Uh, when it was mm-hmm. the kingdom of Italy, I just looked that up too. <laughs> yeah, we we had a this week in spaceflight history where the clue was something about a, a statue. Uh, that I think shared his name, or maybe he was named after the statue, or is you know just a, a coincidence or something like that. Yeah, another great astronaut. He will be missed. I don't, uh, you know, I hope that we see some new ones set foot on the moon in the not too distant future. And I, and I know we said that before, and that's kind of the depressing thing because we've talked about the death of Apollo astronauts before, and we've said exactly the same thing. So uh, I guess let's go SpaceX, right? Yeah, right. I guess they're the ones upon whom our hopes hinge. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we, we've got more in the show uh, later yeah, about yeah. SpaceX going to the moon and being our only hope, but... <laughs> Chinese rocket set for an uncontrolled reentry. So we have a we have an upper stage, I guess. Oh, worse than that. Yeah, upper it's the core that, first stage. Yeah. So this is the Long March Five B, and what what's crazy is that it doesn't have an upper stage. It's got a core stage and four strap-on boosters, but the uh, the core stage is what delivers the payload. It doesn't have an upper stage on top of it. Right. So I guess the second stage, maybe, or whatever you want to. I mean, I would. Yeah, I'd call it the the core stage or or the. 1.5th stage like that's uh who is it uh is it soyuz where they call the first stage the strap-on boosters the core yeah. is the 1.5th yeah the stage and a half stage yes stage and a half. although i mean i mean really that stage and a half is really uh 
best applied to um no 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 the uh the <laughs> gemini launcher it was titan 2 or uh, uh, i know uh, which one you're talking about yeah it was that was the atlas the, at, the atlas yeah. had that weird little like skirt around mm-hmm. it that would fall yeah. off and so yeah and then this it wasn't just the skirt it 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 would drop it its the engines, two right? outer engines yeah and keep the sustainer yeah. engine in the center I can I can never keep those early ones straight because there were so many uh, so many variants and they were all pulled out of mm-hmm. uh, out of military launchers. Anyway, so so yeah, um, having the entire like height of the stack make it to orbit, not the whole width of the stack, but the entire height of the stack make it to orbit is really unusual. And and we've seen um, Long March Five B uh, fly before and and. You know, we've had the same issue. But be- before we get into it too much, I had a number of people send me a TikTok this week <laughs> about this flight. And Dennis, you mm. said that one of your friends sent you this TikTok as well. Mm-hmm. This TikTok made me so mad because this guy <laughs> was saying things that were close to true and like technically true, but not the 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 good kind of true, which is where it's informative. It was the worse than wrong kind of true where it was <laughs> misleading and, and everybody's worried about it. And it's just like, mm-hmm. if you're going to be a science uh, communicator, like you, you at least have to have the right intentions. Like I know that we, we get things wrong on this show all the time, but we don't forget about it. <laughs> as far as I can tell, this guy intentionally misstated it to try and make it seem more dramatic. Uh, and, and he said, accidentally sent the rocket and just, <laughs> maybe, maybe what I'm feeling now is what, what our listeners feel when we get things blatantly wrong. Um, <laughs> probably, uh, and maybe, maybe this should be a lesson, but geez, uh, it really scared people. But I mean, with, with that said, yeah, this, this thing is going to deorbit and we're not sure where it is. And the last, uh, 5B core, uh, to deorbit nearly landed on U.S. soil in the U.S. I, th- I think it was off by like 30 minutes or something. Uh, in terms of when the when the launch took place, I believe I think it was shifted. You know, it was on it was on a different latitude or uh, longitude. But like, yeah. Uh, oh, I saw I saw a tweet. Maybe it was in our uh, in the Discord chat before the show. Somebody said, uh, "I I'll bet that it's going to land in mainland China because they have a really good history of landing uh, uh, booster or uh, rockets." <laughs> Which I thought was really funny. <laughs> but yeah, so it's a it's a Hydrolox engine with RP one Lox boosters for them strapped on the outside. When are we expected to see this thing uh, decay and re-enter? Right, so we should be expecting this uh, this uncontrolled stage, which uh, appears to be tumbling around over the next days or week. You know, it's not well known. You can't really figure it out. And so, oh, wow, Colin, Colin in the chat pointing out that it is on Heavens Above now. So that's good. Uh, so you can uh, keep an eye out for it. So, yeah, but like like you said, so this, this right... This uncontrolled reentry. This was used to launch the Tianhe, uh, the first part of the, uh, you know, the Chinese space station. But, uh, this would be one of the largest instances of a controlled reentry where, where there have been, uh, you know, some recent ones like the Falcon 9's, uh, second stage, uh, in late March. That one had, um, that, that was a much, much, much smaller piece of debris, but it came over the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. and got a lot of videos of that looking really cool. But like you said, right? It was, it was May of last year that the, uh, the first Long March 5B uh, came uncontrolled through the atmosphere and uh, managed to, yeah, splash down the Atlantic, but missed uh, uh, U.S. soil by not that much. Because, yeah, like, I like a good uh, uh, rule of thumb I had seen where, you know, basically every minute in, uh, you know, uncertainty uh, translates to, uh, you know, hundreds of miles in where it actually would, you know, enter. To give you a sense of scale, I thought, like, you know, the rocket, like you said, this is the <laughs> this is the the core stage, you know what I mean? Like the whole, like the, basically the whole stack, except, you know, I guess the payload on the top. And so it's 30 meters long, right? So it's over a hundred feet um, and five meters wide, uh, 21 metric tons of dry mass. And so to give you a sense, that's about the mass of Salyut 7, which was the last uh, of the Salyuts yeah. and also did an uncontrolled reentry back in 91. And so basically other than, you know, you know, this is going to, I guess, tie uh, the previous Long March 5B that, you know, came in uncontrolled uh, recently. And, um, you know, it's basically only behind Skylab, which, of course, was an absolute beast being part of a, you know, mm-hmm. a Saturn. And so that was a good 76 tons. But, so yeah, so this, this is going to be a, a biggie, but, you know, at least these 
stages don't get orbital, right? And so they kind of come in. Um, and unfortunately, you know, depending on where you're launching them in China, um, actually, I guess these ones aren't the ones that would ever tend to land inland that much because uh, they launch out of Wenchang, which is way to the south. And so you would have to like purposefully aim for inland China in order to do that. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you wouldn't get that uh, boost launching east. And at least the good news also is that, uh, you know, it's 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 Hydrolox. That was kind of the big thing about the Long March 5 is that it was the kind of first uh, uh, non-hypergolic, no hypergols mm. anywhere on a Chinese rocket. And so at least it's not going to be... Uh, we're not going to see those unfortunate videos, right? Where you know sometimes you know they, the hypergolic ones go and land, uh, uh, you know, on villages or just you know in the mountainside, and you know you can kind of see that orangey smoke uh, there. So yeah. mercifully, this one uh, doesn't have the toxic uh, propellants on board. So right now it's in a 370 by 172 kilometer orbit with a 41 and a half degree inclination. Actually, it's it's decayed a little bit. Now it's uh, 167 by 338. 167 by 338. Cool, cool, cool. Right. And so this is you know this yeah. is uh, quickly it's, evolving, it's constantly and so, changing. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, honestly, by the time right by the time we uh, you know uh, we publish this episode, you know maybe it, yeah. you know it could have re-entered by then. You know what I mean? Yep. And so wow, uh, uh, Sam in the chat. Uh, gave us uh, uh, some interesting information. And Ben, you want to talk about that? Yeah. So one of the interesting things is this entire time we have heard that it's, you know, the core stage is going to go into orbit and that was going to be it. But it actually sounds like they might have been planning to do a, a deorbit. Um, Sam in the chat during the launch uh, or shortly after the launch actually um, gave us a link and, and we'll... Uh, I think we can include the the original link, but they said um, there were meant to be deorbit rockets apparently because in the Chinese version of the launch broadcast, there somebody said something like uh, deorbit rockets fired or something like that. But as far as we can tell, it didn't work. Um, and at that point, the stage might have already been tumbling. And what's really cool is uh, there is actually um, some good footage that somebody shot of uh, the module passing overhead. And then they posted uh, sort of like um, time lapse video of the state, the, the launcher stage um, flying overhead. And, and the way that they've done it is it, it lays each frame over top of the other. So you can see it moving across the sky, but it also leaves a trail and, and it's a dotted trail. It's actually in a 2.4, uh, rotation per second tumble, a 2.4 Hertz tumble. Um, and the way that Sam wrote their comment to me, it sounds like when they talked about the deorbit thrusters in the, in the broadcast, it was already tumbling at that point. And so maybe they did fire and they just fired in the wrong direction. Uh, maybe they didn't fire at all. Maybe that was just, um, just some spin, uh, unusual, <laughs> unusual word association there. But, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe that was just something for, for the public, uh, which I don't know. That, that seems unlikely to me. So I, I think it's, you know, fantastic if you're going to um, put a huge mass of your launcher, a, a huge portion of your launcher into orbit. Yeah, you want to be able to deorbit that. Um, and so it's good that they're thinking about it now, because as far as I remember, they didn't with the first the Tianhe one launch didn't have the uh, uh, anything mentioning deorbit. I, I could be misremembering, but like, yeah, that's great. But it, it's got to work, right? <laughs> You actually have to be able to do this. So, but yeah, it's it's cool to to have a little bit of a hint that that might have been an intended function of the vehicle. So sources are saying that it's in a tumble, but uh, like obviously, are, are we talking about a spin? Yeah, it's a it's a periodic flash, and that's all we know. So that could be either a tumble or a spin. My my guess is because it's got such a long aspect ratio, it's probably a tumble and not a spin. But I mean, for for the aerodynamics is not that big of a difference because even as it rotates on multiple axes, it's only the, the major axis that really matters. So actually, let me let me do a quick uh, self-correction burn. If it's a tumble, it'll still be a periodic flash, more and less reflective in different orientations. Um, but I think with this, the difference will be that each flash will be a different brightness level. And so I'm pretty sure this is consistent with a tumble. It might not be consistent with a tumble, but I suspect it is. Yeah, I think you're right. Because if it was a roll, you wouldn't expect to be like, you wouldn't expect there to be that much of a change in luminosity, right? 
or you know, uh, yes. Okay. So, so uh, maybe I misunderstood what you were getting at. So for me, um, a tumble versus a single axis rotation hmm. is what I thought you were, you were trying to be specific about. Um, but yeah, this is not a roll along the long axis. This is probably uh, a pitch or a yaw along one of the sh two short axes. Um, the question is, is it, a one axis rotation or is it a multiple ro axis rotation? Mm -hmm. Multiple axes would lead to a tumble in this case, the the technical term tumble. Yeah. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Planetary science. That's how they distinguish between like a moon that's just spinning, you know, normally. And then some like, like one of the moons of Pl uh, Pluto, I know, for example, tumbles. And so it doesn't have a, mm -hmm. a, a, a an axis basically. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. But colloquially it's a roll versus like a cartwheel. Somersault. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I guess to kind of, you know, wrap things up, uh, you know, how much of a threat is this if it were to land in a heavily populated area? Um, which again, right, the odds are, you know, against that, you know, not only is most, most of the earth water, but most of the land is uninhabited as well. But, um, you know, it could still be a little dangerous, but how much is going to burn up? Well, I found a, uh, a, a line from, uh, Holger Krog, who is the head of the space safety program office for ESA. And, uh, he says basically, quote, uh, 20 to 40 percent of the original dry mass, end quote, is a pretty good rule of thumb uh, what, for what will uh, survive reentry. And so given that this is, you know, again, 20 metric tons, roughly, um, 20 to 40 percent, right? Uh, one to two fifths of it, that's still a good chunk of material. And yeah. so let's uh, really hope it kind of lands safely somewhere that doesn't, you know, cause any damage. Yeah. And the, the fact that it's a launch vehicle means it's got a lot of components that are intentionally designed to survive mm. uh, a, a lot of heat. Um, so whereas, you know, uh, a Starlink reentering is, is absolutely going to burn up. You're, you're not going to find anything more than a couple of flakes of dust mm -hmm. uh, hitting the surface. Um, yeah. Rockets. Uh, like entire launch vehicles. Yeah, they're, they're pretty good at surviving. All right. So with that, let's translate on over to Ingenuity. So it's totally flying. <laughs> we talked about it last week and it's been doing some more flying and it's had a third flight success. A, a third and a fourth flight. Third and a fourth flight. Yep, that's right. And flying more than I would have thought in such a short period of time. So I think that they've gained quite a bit of confidence there mm. um, that this is working. So let's go for it, you know? Yeah. So so you're you're alluding to the thing that we're going to talk about at the end. And I just, I want to save the surprise in case anybody hasn't heard it yet. But <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you characterize this as flying more than you would have expected because um, I was a little worried that they weren't going to get their fifth flight in uh, within their 30 days. Um, it, it, this, they had a, a good couple of delays. Um, and we'll talk about the fourth flight being delayed, but yeah, so, so maybe this wasn't as, as much flying in as short a period of time as they would have liked. But, uh, last week we left off, um, after the second flight and we said the third flight's probably going to happen before, uh, the show comes out and indeed it did. So just as a reminder, that's a 50 meter translation uh, to the side and then back, uh, with an increased top speed. This time they did 7.2 kilometers per hour and it was an 80 second, uh, total flight duration. And there is an absolutely fantastic YouTube video that we linked in the show notes that is, uh, shot from, uh, Perseverance and like Ingenuity lifts off during the initial liftoff. Uh, it looks like it's kind of fighting a little bit of a headwind, unlikely given that it's Mars. But uh, it kind of leans over to the side just a little bit. I think it's actually the ground isn't perfectly level. Kind of leans over to the side, comes up to its hover position, hangs out for a second, and then just goes screaming off the side of the foot of, of the video frame, just off in one direction and stays off frame for a little bit and then comes back and lands. And it's just, it's a glorious video. And did you see the, uh, the, the image, uh, from ingenuity of perseverance? I, I hadn't seen that photo. Thank you for pointing that out. That's uh, really cool. It'll be in the show notes. It's, uh, it's a really wide aspect ratio. I'm assuming this is multiple photos put together. Uh, I'm looking at the, uh, at the NASA page and they don't have enough uh, detail in the caption, but yeah, you can see that the photo has been taken after the translation. So, Oh, actually, no, that's the Rover landing site, not, not the, uh, the helicopters landing site. So you can see both, uh, the Rover on one side and where the Rover set down on the right. And it's, it's a fantastic photo. It may be a, a mosaic or a collage. 
So, so then uh, they got to work on their fourth flight this last week, and um, they actually had a delay. The first time they tried to initiate the fourth flight, the helicopter didn't take off. And the question is, is this the flight one issue happening all over again, the watchdog issue? And it turns out, yeah, it, it was. So their watchdog fix was a, I believe, an order of operations fix. If we kind of a, an Apollo 13, if we start up this system and then that system uh, will be okay. But if we start up that system and then this system, then we'll, mm. um, we'll wind up having this watchdog issue. Uh, be, the reason that I say that is because they confirmed that it, they did not do a software update to fix it. And what's really interesting is because they um, chose, you know, this ostensibly safer route of not having a software update and instead doing like a, a command update or, or the way that they command lift off. Uh, it's only successful 85% of the time is what their predictions say. Hmm. And so it sounds like the attempt uh, for the fourth flight, the first attempt to initiate uh, the fourth flight uh, was one of that 15% where the fix doesn't work. Um, so they, uh, you know, regrouped and tried again and they were successful. Uh, the fourth flight, um, they did an 133 meter translation out and then another 133 meters back. They got up to a top speed of 13 kilometers an hour. Um, and from what I heard before the flight, Perseverance was going to try and get an audio recording of the flight. I haven't seen it anywhere. So maybe they're processing the audio. Maybe they're saving it for a later, uh, downlink. Uh, or maybe it just didn't sound good enough to, to release, but. It would be really cool to hear a drone on Mars. Right. It's going to be quiet, man. It's going to be quiet, but I still want to hear that angry bee uh, <laughs> hum, that buzz. <laughs> and so since, let's see, the Martian atmosphere is a lower density than Earth, but it is also mostly composed of a denser uh, molecule, CO2. Um, if you were to take... Um, Martian atmosphere and pressurize it to one Earth atmosphere, it would be denser. Um, but the lower pressure means that it's less dense. And so that means that sound doesn't travel as far, but it also means that sound gets pitched up. Doesn't mean that sound gets pitched. Okay. So Colin in the chat says it's not going to change the pitch. It's just going to cause different resonances to occur. Okay, cool. So yeah, so we'll, we'll hear that familiar angry buzz, which should be higher pitched because the rotors, uh, are spinning faster, way faster than, uh, than, um, drones on earth. Um, and so ho hopefully we'll get some good audio from that. So the, the fourth flight happened great. The fifth flight has not yet happened. But what's really cool is they announced what the fifth flight objectives are going to be. It's going to be a one-way flight. Uh, they're taking all of the video from the fourth flight or all the imagery returned, and they're going to use it to select a new landing location. And the, the flight number five is going to go to that landing location and land somewhere other than Wright Brothers Field. Is that what they're calling it? Uh, or, or Wright? right field, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a reference to the Wright brothers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a, a one-way flight. Like how cool is that? And so, um, the reason that I'm joyous about a one-way flight and not disappointed because they were saying, well, the fifth flight, we're, you know, potentially going to destroy the vehicle. Like we're, we're okay with taking higher risk, uh, flight profiles. And one of the cool things that they said they might do is do a big old circle around the Rover. The reason that a one-way flight is appealing to me instead of hugely disappointing is because they got a mission extension. Wow. Yay. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> so they're calling this initial 30 days, uh, their tech demo and they're getting another 30 days for an ops demo. I am excited and impressed, uh, by their technical achievements, but boy, I am even more impressed by how well they had this uh, option buttoned up. No one talked about it. Um, there wasn't even a hint that this might be an option. Everybody said we're getting five flights, 30 days, and that's it. I think I brought up, you know, like, couldn't this be extended? And I think you would say that that's not possible. Or... Yeah, exactly. I, well, I was totally fooled by their perfectly silent 
uh, behavior. Right. And just right, just to remind everybody, the, the reason why it was originally limited to 30 days is because it encroaches on the rover's operations. So it's not as though they thought it would have like mm-hmm. a lifetime of 30 days. It was just that they were going to have 30 days where the rover's still doing some things. But, you know, I mean... It, it takes a lot of, you know, uh, organizational uh, and human power, you know, hours to like, you know, prepare and do these flights and analyze the data and all that stuff. And so that's that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the ability to enact this mission extension option was very much contingent on the performance of the vehicle. And so what's really cool is that they have had two aborts and still decided to go ahead with this. And so you can look at this two ways. Either uh, the performance was fantastic, aborts aside, but I, I think those aborts might have contributed, um, to the valuation of how well this, this vehicle did. The, the ability to, to take aborts in stride and keep going, I, I think is, um, a, a fantastic benefit of this vehicle. And, uh, certainly this vehicle's team, right? The ingenuity team, uh, has been, uh, absolute pros uh, mm-hmm. doing this as far as I can tell. Also, I have a quote from uh, Zuberkin. He says, the ingenuity technology demonstration has been a resounding success. And boy, that's got to feel real good if you've uh, been anywhere near this vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, honestly, we did we did one interview with a team member and I just, I, I, I'm beaming with pride at, at how well these folks have done. So they have set aside 30 days for this ops demo, but they have NASA has said that they are very open to continuing flights beyond 30 days um, based on the vehicle's performance, but also uh, based on how much impact it has on the rover and how much benefit it provides to the rover. Because the operations demo, the point is to demonstrate scouting capabilities. And oh boy, this is what we were talking about, right? This is what we were like, yeah, imagine being able to take this tech demo. Well, David, this is what you were saying. Imagine being able to take this tech demo and use it for a certain period to be able to go and do scout, uh, scouting missions. Like that's, that's this, the contribution that this vehicle can make. Um, it doesn't have any other real science instruments, um, other than imaging targets that won't be visited by the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And like, that's exactly what this tech demo was about. Let's go scout future targets. And what's really cool is, uh, Dennis, like you said, it's, it's had a big impact on, on the Perseverance team, but the Perseverance rover itself, like what it is able to do. And in this ops demo, one of the other things that they're demonstrating is more independence. Um, the ability to um, do flights once or twice a month without impinging on Perseverance's um, allotted um, person hours, but also its, you know, its operations on the surface. I mean, it, this is a dream come true, in my opinion. Uh, all these things, not only being able to go do these things, but also um, having the confidence from NASA leadership to go and give it a shot. I think that's what happens when you have a resounding success is that they <laughs> often seize upon the opportunity. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they, like they don't rest on their laurels. I, I've kind of noticed, you know, like if something works, then they're going to make the best of it. And so I, I guess it's not surprising that that's what happened in this case. This is yeah. so sci-fi. Uh, yeah. true, and, and it's unexpected sci-fi, which is <laughs> the yeah. best kind. Uh, Colin in the chat says they could fly a pattern about features and take photos that can be used for photogrammetry. Yeah. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Mm. Uh, I I really like that. So is photogrammetry, I don't know what that is. Is that like where you can, is that kind of like a 3D rendering of something? Yeah, in this case, in this case, yeah, I'd be doing a a 3D model. Cool. Which, you know, rovers have done that in the past. They, you know, they they can take images from multiple points and, and we can reconstruct it. But to be able to do that with an above ground perspective, really, you know, there, there aren't going to be any, uh, shadows that the rover can't see. Uh, if you're flying over top of a, of a structure, you get to see it not only from both sides, but from every point in between as often as you can take frames that, you know, and, and as often as you can send back, uh, frames. So very, very cool. If we saw the same one, there was a curiosity had basically moved around like a little plateau. Mm-hmm. And so they came up with a really nice, you know, video rendering, 3D kind of rendering of what it was like based on the images that it took it w- wouldn't even necessarily need, need to be that accurate but more like just to convey 
what it feels like or really looks like, you know, because I don't know if, you know, I mean, depending on like, I guess what the surrounding features are, it might look different just because you have a much smaller horizon or a much closer one. Or is that something that you would notice? And I guess, especially since there's not trees to compare things to, mm -hmm. like, like you might not notice, but I was just wondering, like, what does that really look like to stand on the surface of Mars? Yeah. And it gets more complicated when you're talking about VR, because you could present it at different scales, you know, to your eyes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, uh, uh, seeing a real world scale would be really cool. Yeah. But yeah, I think I, David, I think you're spot on without trees, it's going to be tough to judge distances. Um, <laughs> and not only that, but since there's lower gravity, um, mountains and cliffs can be sharper, uh, mm -hmm. and, and be stable. So that may also affect the way that you, uh, interpret, uh, landscape data just in your brain. What's hard enough to gauge the distance of a mountain here on Earth? Like, I can't do it. <laughs> you know, like every time you see yeah. one, you think, oh, that's not too far away, but it's like two hours away or something. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, I can never tell with mountains. Okay, so before we get away from ingenuity, uh, I wanted to present a really cool, fun fact that we uh, learned um, from a press conference this week. Uh, Ingenuity's flight time is limited by the excess heat soaked into the motors um, so you know nothing cools very quickly on mars and ingenuity's flight time is limited by motor heating not the battery capacity mm. i have no idea yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's that i mean it, it's it's really cool that you can build a battery that can last longer than uh than motors can on mars I mean, it's, it's actually a huge disappointment because it, you know, it's a limiting factor, but <laughs> I, I think that's pretty darn neat. And then, uh, so, so like you said, Dennis, um, the 30 day limit wasn't on, uh, ingenuity's, uh, physical lifespan. It was just an operations constraint. And, um, they've confirmed that, yeah, they expect ingenuity to die one of these days um, due to um, stresses on the mechanical parts. Specifically, the day-night thermal cycling is so extreme that um, all of their mechanical parts are commercial off the shelf. And uh, they, they believe that one of these COTS parts is just going to snap one day. Mm. Um, and I really hope that it snaps on one of the flights where the rover is watching. Cause I want to see mm. this thing fly and just like stop flying and, <laughs> and crash into the ground. I think that'd be pretty cool. Um, I'm totally okay with watching vehicles crash on Mars as long as they've done such a great job. Okay, so now moving on to short and sweet, so let's do the first one of those, Dennis. Right, first up, Virgin Orbit to launch out of Brazil. The Brazilian Space Agency announced that Virgin Orbit was selected to fly their Launcher 1 system from the country's Alcantara Launch Center, or CLA. While the facility has hosted dozens of uncrewed suborbital launches, this will bring orbital capability to the CLA in Brazil for the first time. Virgin Orbit will have a small footprint on the site, given their launch system's fully transportable equipment, and will make CLA one of the only continental spaceports capable of reaching any orbital inclination. All right, and then next up, Blue Origin and Dynetics protest HLS awards. So I guess we could have talked about this by itself. I feel <laughs> this is a. Pretty... I, I, I've had thoughts on it too, and I uh, but I saw that we already had a pretty good amount of space flight news, so I threw yeah. it down here. <laughs> We might talk more about this next week. I don't know. So both of the unchosen companies in the human landing system down select last month have now filed protest of the award, in which SpaceX was selected to use their Starship vehicle to bring humans back to the moon. Lorgin wrote that in addition to not being given the opportunity to change their proposal based on NASA's budgetary situation, the company also alleged that NASA improperly evaluated the proposals. Dynetics, the lowest ranked bidder of the three, told Space News that it had issues and concerns with the process, although they did not elaborate. All right. And finally, Nelson has been confirmed as the NASA administrator. Bill Nelson has been unanimously confirmed by the Senate to be NASA's next administrator, a much quicker and less contentious nomination than his predecessor, Jim Bridenstine's. Nelson, a former senator who flew to space on STS-61C, also had support from space industry officials, including the president and chief executive of the Aerospace Industries Association. While the date of his swearing-in hasn't been announced, it is expected to take place by early next week. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. 
questions, comments, and several corrections this week. Yeah, so I guess, Ben, I think that these are all three, I guess these are in regard to something that you had said. Mm-hmm. So I guess these are your corrections. Yeah, you know, I, I always feel... Uh conflicted when when i get correction burns on something that i said very clearly and thought was true because <laughs> like on the one hand i'm just like oh, i can't believe i said that and i i didn't get this right but on the other hand i'm really happy to add this knowledge so all three of these come from ben hallert thank you ben constant source of uh, of good knowledge hmm. um so first uh, this is uh regarding uh Aces and Centaur 5. Um, so I said that Aces wasn't planned to have on-orbit refueling. And actually that, uh, Ben says, Ben Hallert says, uh, that that was actually the primary functionality of Aces. It was to be part of a distributed lift depot strategy ULA wanted to pursue before Boeing prohibited it as a threat to SLS. Ooh. More drama. <laughs> okay. Uh, second, uh, I said that the dual engine Centaur hadn't flown yet, uh, but for decades until Atlas V, DEC was the norm. Uh, 2019's OFT1 for Starliner was the first DEC flight under the Atlas V. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, the, the misunderstanding I had or the misconception I crammed into my head. Atlas V really only flew DEC once. Um, but before Atlas V, DEC was, was the default. So great. Thank you. Um, and then a third correction burn. Uh, according to a tweet from Tori Bruno last year, the hydrogen peroxide, uh, we, we talked about the RCS, uh, system being, uh, powered by hydrogen peroxide. And boy, mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time kind of scratching our yeah. heads and trying to figure this out. Yeah, mm. no, that was a typo in the infographic. It, was actually, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be uh, O2H2. It was supposed to be O2 slash H2. It's actually, <laughs> this is so cool. It's actually a, a unified uh, fluids vehicle. They're actually using hydrogen and oxygen from the main tanks. They don't need extra tanks. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So the, the tweet from Tori, uh, last year, almost exactly a year ago says, good catch. It should say H2 slash O2, a thruster that uses propellant from the main tank instead of a standalone system. And that's one of the things that I don't know about you guys. That's one of the things that I was bummed about losing, uh, from aces. And it's not the case that they, they are actually yeah. going to do. Uh, unified uh, propellants. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very cool. That was the whole point of ACES, right? Was it, it was supposed to be a unified propellant system, right? So yeah, yeah, and you know, ACES was going a little farther by having the uh, the souped up lawnmower engine there to do power generation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but yeah, uh, Hydrolox RCS system. I don't know if we've ever seen that before. I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be a sparker, right? Like it's gotta be electric, electric ignition. Well, it's something that we've never seen, right? Because the whole idea with RCS is that you want it to be very reliable, yeah. To be very reliable, but also to have a very quick startup time, Mm -hmm. you know, which is something that you can do Mm -hmm. with those. Like you don't have to prime an engine or do anything complicated because it's not complicated. And so how this works, I don't know. But, um, yeah, like you said, I guess it's not hard to ignite liquid oxygen hydrogen or you well, know, gaseous forms of it yeah so i i wouldn't be surprised if this was um using up some some of the gaseous pressure that builds up in the tanks like they they might just be sipping on gas to power these things and that that'd be really cool that that would satisfy my uh my engineering mm-hmm. itch I'm, i was looking at the tweets and someone replied to the tory bruno one with okay but surely has a small hypergolic source for startup and bruno replied it also also has a small hydrazine ACS system. Ah, okay. Hmm. ACS is a attitude control. Okay. System. Attitude control. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe the hydrolox is for. Uh, I mean, translation doesn't seem very likely. But yeah, maybe that's for like the the bigger burns and like little tiny adjustments. Uh, maybe during burns they'll use the hydrolox. I don't know. So with that, let's uh yeah, let's now move on to this week in spaceflight history. Unfortunately, no winners. Uh, once again, I think this is the third time in a row we've got a both a winning slash losing streak. We've been fooling everyone, um, which is not the intent. <laughs> no winners. The clue was in hindsight, it didn't seem like it would work, and that was a pun of sorts. Um, and I did mention that last week. So this week in spaceflight history was on the fifth of May, nineteen ninety nine, and that was the failed second flight of Delta three. 
Um, and there were only three flights, and um, I've covered Delta Four. I remember talking about that. I think maybe Delta Two as well, and this is the one in the middle. So I think uh, I think we're gonna you know discuss them all. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is the one that just kind of was not meant to be, um, and we'll learn a little bit about why that was. Um, but we're gonna focus on the second flight, obviously. So just. Very quickly, the first flight, um, I thought this was kind of neat, and I kind of wanted to mention this. Um, so the Delta III, this is a Boeing launch vehicle. And the first flight of the Delta III, that failed. That one also failed, but that was actually due to a guidance a software issue. Um, and that caused a rapid loss of hydraulic fluid and a loss of vehicle. And I thought that that's not unlike Starliner, right? I mean, it's not the exact same thing because it was not a hydraulic type of an issue. Um, in that case, it was, um, you know, fuel uh, that was being overexpended. I guess, and that was due to a guidance software issue. I believe it was like a dead band issue. Yes. Because that was a new term that I had learned. And so this seems like something possibly similar, that maybe that's what caused right. the early loss of the hydraulic fluid. I thought that was kind of strange. That No, so I was going to say, right, like, if I remember correctly, the, with the Starliner, it was that it pulled the wrong mission elapsed time from the, from yeah, the Atlas V. Right. Yep. And then it, yeah, and then so it, it yeah, it, it tried, it, basically tried to be more stringent in terms of its dead band mm -hmm. than it should have. And so it was basically wasting fuel to be very precise with its attitude and burn through it all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like that might have happened here. I don't know. <laughs> it looks like Boeing has a history of that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but um, Shades of it from the past. Wow. <laughs> 20 years ago at this point. <laughs> but anyway, moving on to the second flight of the Delta III. So just really quickly, um, what is the Delta III? I didn't put too much here, um, but just to talk briefly about it, um, it has a first stage with a LOX RP-1 engine, and the engine is um, the RS-27A. The first stage um, is four meters in diameter, which is uh, quite a bit larger than the Delta II, which was, I believe, uh, 2.4 specifically. The reason for this was that they actually wanted to fit the vehicle inside the same facility, so they didn't want to make it taller, so they just made it wider. The upper stage is a Hydrolox engine, the RL-10B2. So this was a new variant of uh, the RL-10, and it's still used today. Um, it's quite a bit more powerful, so that was probably the biggest part of the upgrade. But um, at that point, it was still a fairly new engine. Um, it had first flown in 1998. Uh, and, of course, this launch is taking place in 1999. So really just a few flights of the RL-10B. Mm. So the payload, the failed to get to orbit payload, that was the Orion 3. And to be honest, there's not a whole lot on this payload. Um, not that it's particularly interesting, um, you know, <laughs> but uh, this, I mean, this is just, you know, another communication satellite that was supposed to operate over, I think it was um, some longitude around Asia, and it was a $145 million spacecraft built by Hughes Space Communications, and it was operated by the Orion Network Systems, which was actually since merged with Laurel Space and Communications. Hmm. So that does not even exist anymore. And perhaps that's why it's hard to find information on, you know, the Orion satellite. This satellite had 10 C-band and 33 KU-band transponders, and it was supposed to be delivered to a geosynchronous orbit. And the expected operational lifetime was to be 15 years. So that, of course, did not happen. So let's talk about the mission itself, um, which is kind of the more interesting thing. So, yeah, as I said, it launched on May 5th, 1999 um, from Slick 17B, and that's at the Cape. It had a nominal first and second staging. And um, at that point, it had to enter, you know, a coasting phase because that's generally what happens before you go to geostationary transfer orbit. And I don't know how long that coasting phase was, but, you know, probably not too long. Then it restarts the engines for what was supposed to be a 162-second burn, but about like 3.4 seconds into the burn, the engines shut down when a malfunction was detected. And then the stage went into a tumble. And now I know that a tumble means, you know, <laughs> along two axes, huh. most likely. But um, it was able to regain attitude. And at that point, the Orion 3 was actually released, but into a much lower orbit of 160 by 1,284 kilometers. And it had a 29.5 degree inclination, which was a worthless orbit. Uh, because obviously this needed to be in geostationary transfer orbit. Wow. At that point, for some reason, they still raised the orbit, and then they lowered the inclination by about half a degree. Uh, I don't know why they did that. I don't know what they were hoping to gain by lowering the inclination in such a low orbit. I mean, I don't know if this is kind of like 
maybe trying to put the spacecraft in some kind of an orbit where it, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't know why that was. Yeah, why, why shave off half a degree? Yeah. It's some kind of an off-nominal procedural thing, I guess. But I don't know what the justification for doing that would be, especially if you're doing it in low Earth orbit. Trying to change by half a degree is actually going to use quite a bit of fuel because I'm assuming that that inclination change, which, you know, did need to happen, that was probably supposed to happen at the correct apoapsis or the correct apogee, which would have been, you know, tens of thousands of kilometers mm -hmm. much further out. So this was a completely worthless orbit. Uh, the whole thing was declared a loss. Um, and the satellite operators received their compensation from their insurers for $247 million. And at that point, the Orion 3 was handed over to the insurers, which was also kind of something new that I learned. I didn't know that that's what you did if you had a lost you know, spacecraft. You just handed it over to the insurance company. But I guess that's what happens, hmm. just like with anything else, right? Actually, I'm not sure. So, like, if you total your car and you <laughs> and it's insured, do they get the car? I don't, yeah, know, they, I don't know what happens at that point. Yeah, they get the car and they sell it to recoup some of their losses. They impounded the Orion 3. <laughs> wow. Yes, essentially. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Yeah. But there wasn't much that they could do with it, but they tried. So this is kind of interesting. So they tried to ask NASA to consider a shuttle mission to the Orion 3 to actually, you know, hmm. attach a kickstage to it. The insurance company did. Yeah. Wow. Yes, the insurance company. You know, because this had been done back in 1992 with STS-49, um, and that was with an Intel sat. But I have to say that kind of surprises me that they even did that. And I'm sure that there were other things, you know, that the shuttle did during, you know, that mission. But going to rescue a satellite when your shuttle launch itself is something close to like half a billion dollars. Uh, I don't know why, you know, like NASA would take them up on that. I think it was. I don't know what the motivation would I be. Think, I think uh, NASA just wanted to fly the shuttle for any reason right. it and could kind of, justify the, you know. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what I was thinking is that they were kind of operating kind of like a gun for hire. Like, you mm -hmm. know, like we'll go fix your satellite if no one else can, kind of like the A-team or something. Like, you know, they just go out there and, you know, like rescue <laughs> satellites. I mean, that seems to be kind of what they did back in like the early days because now, I mean, like if the shuttle was still around, I don't think that they would ever do such a thing. That there's, that there's just no cost case to be made mm -hmm. there. I mean, sure, like if you're going to repair the Hubble Space Telescope, but that's different. But this is just a little communication satellite uh, that is not even worth the cost of a single shuttle mission. So unsurprisingly, NASA said no. But partially, that's also just because a shuttle mission still would not be able to put it into the correct orbit um, because they would have to get the inclination of the satellite down from 29 degrees to what I think is 19.8. Um, but I couldn't find out what the actual final orbit was supposed to be. Couldn't find that anywhere, but I saw one reference that said 19.8. So maybe. Um, I don't know if that's common for geosynchronous satellites uh, to have that kind of inclination, but that certainly seems much more reasonable than 29. Mm -hmm. But possibly it needs to be lower. And I'm guessing that since you attach a kickstage, right, which you can get it out to that apogee, the inclination change probably needs to be made from the spacecraft itself, but they had already used up all that fuel doing the inclination change back in low Earth orbit. Um, that's my assumption and just why they couldn't save it. Mm -hmm. But um, there was an investigation launched, and during that investigation, pretty much any other rocket that had an RL-10 upper stage was grounded. There had been something that went wrong with the upper stage there, probably specifically the RL-10 engine. Uh, so that grounded vehicles like the Atlas and the Centaur, the official investigation concluded after about a year that there was a breach of the combustion chamber. This was at a previously repaired reinforcement strip called number 91. So I guess a little bit about reinforcement strips, and I actually was not too familiar with this. So this particular combustion chamber for the Arlington engine, um, it's actually put together from four separate pieces, and then you weld those together, but then on top of that, you put these strips, which are meant to reinforce that particular joint. And um, they're actually called strengthener strips. Didn't know that. Is that anything like the uh, uh, ring that tends to fall off of uh, a Falcon 9 upper stage engine? No, that's that's just in the engine nozzle. Um, and that's, I mean, that is there to make sure that nothing happens to the bell, but that's not supposed to. That's um, not there for structural. That, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's just there to protect the engine nozzle um, okay. during the rigors of liftoff. But that strip is meant to fall off. These are not. <laughs> okay. um, these are supposed to be like welded onto. Uh, the combustion chamber. But yeah, the thing that you're talking oh, about... Oh, sorry, I, I missed like that. But this is all in the combustion chamber. I see. Right. Well, this is on the outside of the combustion chamber. So this is basically trying to hold together four separate pieces. So um, what they found was uh, the brazing technique that they had been using for about two years at this point to attach the strips that could actually leave gaps and voids in those joints. And they were only using x-ray inspections and that might not detect all the gaps. And what's really interesting here is that 
Pratt & Whitney, who actually built the R10 engine, they claimed that they did not know about this problem because of poor translation. And I don't think that they mean, you know, from one foreign language to another, but poor translation by the design engineers to the brazing requirements and the screening criteria used by the quality inspectors. So basically, the inspectors did not know what they were supposed to be looking for. And I think that, you know, the people who were actually doing the welding, I don't think that they knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing either. Mm. So the discrepancy is because the design requirements are for 80% coverage of the strip or the weld that holds the strip onto that seam. But that's per square inch. <laughs> and Pratt and Whitney thought that this was like the overall strip itself. So they were just looking for, you know, like an average of 80%, which does not sound like a good idea, just like when you think about it, because that could mean that you have much less weld on one side, but more on the other. And that doesn't do any good. So I don't know what they were thinking when they thought that, you know, you could just go for an average. Um, I just don't think of it that way. But in fact, uh, the weld, you know, had to be like 80% per linear inch. And there were some areas where the brazing coverage was as low as 20%. So that's really bad. Yeah. So Pratt and Whitney, you know, had to revise the brazing requirements and the inspections were then upgraded to include ultrasonic inspection as well as the x-ray to detect gaps. They had to change the brazing technique, but I couldn't find much on exactly what the technique is. And I don't know enough about, and like I've never like welded mm -hmm. anything in my life, but, uh, there's not much in the way of images because, again, this is like a long time ago. There's one picture, but it's really fuzzy and you can't magnify it. Like you can't click on it and make it any bigger. But yeah, the, the gaps run vertically up and down the, the combustion chamber. They're 90 degrees apart, so there are four of them. And yeah, it's two faces that meet um, with the cooling tubes on the inside um, and then a, a gap in between them and then a reinforcement strip on the outside. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. How so if that isn't uh, brazed together perfectly well, it, it might not fail as soon as you start up the engine because you still have a lot of structure in there. But uh, yeah, it totally burn through after a while. Yeesh. Is that how most combustion chambers are put together? I mean, you have to have a seam in there somewhere if you're using traditional manufacturing techniques. But um, like engine bells, a lot of the time, if they have cooling tubes, the tubes themselves will be... Uh, brazed together. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that was... Th this looks like, yeah, they, they might have brazed the cooling tubes and then put reinforcement on the outside. But yeah, I don't mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, I don't think that cooling tubes inside of, of a combustion chamber is super common today. I think it's preferable to use, uh, what's it called, cooling films, like where you get uh, incomplete or uh, um, like fuel-rich gas flowing over the surface and then you know it's it's the combustion technique itself that's keeping it cool rather than adding tubes but yeah mm -hmm. i'm not sure so this second flight was a failed flight i guess just to go through the the whole history of the delta 3 since it's so short there was one other flight after this one but at this point the satellite launch market was just kind of going in a pretty severe downward trajectory i'm not sure why um i don't think it was for economic reasons um it possibly could have been but i feel like that, that was kind of like you know a big boom of a time you know like the late 90s but they're just they just didn't have the need for the delta three although they did have a contract with the rhine for 13 satellites but the company got bought out and I think there were some satellites that just weren't even launched because uh, there, there just was not the need anymore. So anyway, they still wanted to do this third mission, but they didn't have a payload. So they put a little dummy payload in there and they did get that one to orbit, I believe. But that's you know, <laughs> the only successful launch. And that was also the last one. So their only successful mission was not even for a customer. Uh, so a bit of a bit of an ignominious end to the Delta Three. Yeah. So some of the changes that they had to make, or at least some of the uh, brazing process failures that contributed um, included uh, the cleaning solvent. Uh, they or The, the uh, cleaning solvent, it sounds, wasn't good enough, so they changed it subs yeah, subsequent to en engine qualification. They, they switched to a new solvent. Uh, Fit-up of the parts was bad, tooling was bad, and the, the amount of braze material was insufficient. So, yeah, th those are all things that will cause your engine to fall apart. <laughs> yeah, and, and the fact that in some places it was as low as 20% material would seem to indicate that they're not using enough of it. So yep. that seems like a pretty easy fix, like just use more, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, you know, fill in that gap. Yeah, and, and it's, it's an easy fix, and it should be an easy thing to identify. I mean, the fact of the matter is that they um, didn't collect additional data on this engine. They actually went back over uh, their X-ray data 
um, from pre-flight and found these things. So it, it really comes down to bad communication. If you're going to hire somebody to do qualification, you need to be very clear what they're looking for. And it sounds like in this case, it just, it was not clear what they were supposed to do. They made some assumptions that were bad. Um, so kind of everybody's fault here. So I've, I've contributed a decent amount of time to writing um, coding manuals and standard operating procedure manuals uh, for work. And I, I love it. Uh, I love um, the exercise of just thinking about uh, how could somebody misinterpret this? What is my actual intention? What do I care about making? Because uh, it's always a trade-off. Like, do I put um, more words here? And like, that's the cost. The cost is there are more words. It's harder to read. And do I trade that for less uh, ambiguity or is this something that I don't really care about? And it's okay if it's a little ambiguous and I would rather have those words back, rather take those words out. And so like, th this is fascinating to me and I, I love this kind of thing and it, it sucks to see it fail, but it's interesting to see why things fail and which, you know, which things blow up <laughs> when your documentation isn't good. See, that seems like you enjoy that to me. That seems like something I would never want to do. Although, I mean, I can see what you mean because you do like to, like, there is something satisfying about clearly written instructions, especially yeah. like when you've read bad ones. And I've yeah. read, you know, like when you read bad instructions in, the, in your first thought is, I think I could do better. <laughs> so like you actually yeah. get the opportunity to do that. Yeah. And it turns out you think you can do better and it's really hard to actually do better. It turns out. I'm really lucky that when I've done this at work, I haven't been the end of the line. I've, I've just submitted... Uh, my opinions and somebody else has gone, yeah, this is good. This is bad. So that's Delta three. That's their second flight, a loss. Oh, and I guess I should get to the clue, right? I'll save the best for last. <laughs> so the pun, right? In hindsight, it didn't seem like it would work. The pun is in hindsight, it didn't seem like it would work. C oh, S-E-A-M. <laughs> oh, boy. Yep. <laughs> I guess it's good that I saved that for last so you, so that you didn't groan throughout the entire thing. But yeah. Well, now, now, I, now I understand why nobody got it right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it was kind of obscure, huh? That was pretty tough. It didn't seem, I should have said it didn't seem wink, wink, like it would work. Yeah. Then maybe that would have helped. Awesome event, David. Well, next week is the 11th through the 17th of May. And so, Ben, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1963, uh, the the clue that I've written down is balloon squeak. So, I mean, just imagine the that like whee, sound as a balloon goes flapping through the air. I was hoping you'd do a sound effect. Uh, I thought I thought about going and looking it up and doing an audio clue, but uh, I'm going to leave it to the listener's imagination. Well, um, I think I know what that might be, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a great uh, great clue. I like it. I like. I'm glad that you <laughs> you did the audio for it. And so, uh, <laughs> if you uh, think you know what that event is, and even if you don't, now might be a good time to you know try <laughs> for the first time ever. You know, just go for it. Random um, ass we want to get a yeah. lot of guesses. And so, uh, <laughs> either shoot us an email or tweet at us with the. Uh, uh, Hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Cool. Well, let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We really only got two, and neither one of them is a launch. <laughs> <laughs> they they are they are both uh, launch adjacent. Let's say. Right. Okay. Uh, so first up, uh, I don't know if everybody is subscribed to the Blue Origin uh, YouTube page, but uh, they they put out like a thirty second video ramping up the hype. Um, they are going to be announcing. Uh, the process that it, or the, the application for getting a ride on New Shepard. Uh, they are about ready to start selling off tickets for New Shepard suborbital flights. Um, I didn't get that hyped because there's no way I could afford one. Um, if you <laughs> want to go ahead and buy one for, for me, just make sure to be polite and buy three so, uh, all three of us can go. I say as nonchalantly as possible. <laughs> so uh, if you're subscribed to their YouTube channel, I'm sure that it will come up as a planned stream. Uh, but if not, blueorigin.com uh, is where they're going to be streaming from. Uh, that announcement is going to be on the 5th of May uh, at 12 p.m. Eastern. And our second event is on the 10th of May at 4 p.m. Eastern, and it's NASA coverage of OSIRIS-REx's departure from Bennu. So it's finally going to take off. It did that flyby of the sampling site to go and see kind of what it had kicked up. And uh, it's going to, again, on May 10th, uh, 
depart Bennu, the asteroid, and start returning to Earth, uh, make its trip back, uh, with an anticipated uh, in September of 2023 when it'll actually drop off the sample. 2023, man. You know, electric propulsion is really cool. It's really <laughs> slow. Yep. And so this uh, will be, uh, again, on May 10th at 4 p.m. on NASA TV. Great. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. Well, that's it for those. And I guess that's it for us. So we will <laughs> deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information, on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links or orbital podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.